Every learner who comes into a non-credit program should learn two things. One, what kind of job can I get with this education and training? And what additional education and training is available to me when I finish it? Knowing those options is empowering for learners. But the most important thing is, you know, what are we here uh, to, to do? Is, and it's really to help support our learners, regardless of what programs that they're participating in. Making sure that, right, we don't have the stratification with, hmm, we're calling students and non-credit, non-credit students, and we're calling students in credit just students. What does that language actually imply about how we treat learners on our campuses when they enroll in these two different, quote unquote, sides of the college? This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Kaylee Woods. On this episode of In the Know, ACCT's Sean Robbins sits down with Annie Phillips from Education Strategy Group to discuss the progress of our joint non-credit alignment lab initiative. The grant program was designed to identify best practices to equitably and effectively serve learners enrolled in non-credit programs at community colleges. Hello, my name is Sean Robbins, and I am the project associate of the Center for Policy and Practice at ACCT. In today's episode on our non-credit and credit alignment lab initiative, we will share more on our project and the experiences of students at participating institutions. Non-credit programming can be a stepping stone to further education and training that leads to higher earnings and greater career sustainability. Unfortunately, our systems are designed to discourage rather than facilitate pathways across non-credit and credit programs, according to ESG research. The result is that many students in non-credit programs are left without pathways to additional learning and colleges fail to take advantage of a significant population of engaged learners ready to enroll in credit-bearing programs. Over the last two years, ACCT has partnered with the Education Strategy Group to support the development of new and improved pathways between non-credit and credit programs. We are grateful to have this work funded on behalf of the ECMC Foundation. In 2023, we released a new suite of resources, which highlights the work of community colleges across the country who are making real progress in building more unified resources. These six briefs offer a closer look at how NCAL community colleges are making meaningful progress under each of the key pillars for success in this work, which were first outlined in the framework of ESG's A More Unified Community College. Well, today I am joined by my colleague, Annie Phillips from ESG. So um, thank you so much, Annie, for, for being here with us today. Thanks, Sean. Good to be here. So uh, NCAL was created to help move towards a one college model. So why do you think some colleges are making this a priority right now? I think colleges are making this a priority for a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, in NCAL, we actually asked colleges, what is your motivation for this work? And a lot of them mention the learner. And so I think starting with the learner makes sense. You know, what we are seeing across the country, our firm ESG, we work all over the U.S., is that a lot of people are really interested in short-term training options, right? There's um, a really good survey that actually came out from ECMC last summer that showed Gen Zers, right, learners in high school right now would actually prefer to get their skills over a period of time, like 70% of learners that they surveyed. So we're seeing all this interest in short-term training, but a lot of people are concerned that short-term training, non-credit training 
it could be a dead end for learners. So I think first and foremost, colleges are starting to prioritize this non-credit and credit alignment as a strategy for equity in order to, right, make sure that those learners have a pathway to additional education and training. I also think we're seeing some interest in this um, in part because states are prioritizing this, governors are prioritizing workforce training um, more than they ever had. I mean, you name it, states like Indiana, Virginia, Louisiana, Iowa, all have grants at the state level right now to promote non-credit education and training. And so colleges trying to take advantage of this are building pathways into their credit programs. And the last, th last thing that is really relevant right now, I think, is the federal movement we're seeing around short-term training. Um, you know, the latest iteration of short-term Pell, the bipartisan workforce uh, Pell Act that's been proposed in Congress emphasizes alignment of those short-term programs that will be funded with longer-term programs. And I think really enlightened leaders are looking at that, you know, seeing the writing on the wall and saying, hey, we need to prepare our programs today to be more aligned so that they're eligible for funding when it becomes available. You know, when you think about non-credit side of the house for an institution and the actual credit side, there are a lot of times on different sides of the campus and they're not talking to each other, right? So it makes it a little bit more complicated to first get your bearings um, with you, especially in thinking about these future pathways that are, you know, being encouraged, that grant money that you just mentioned. So in thinking about, you know, the work that we've been doing over the last uh, last two years now, can you share a little bit more about our initiative and the, the overall guiding framework that was initially developed? Yeah, so I'll start there, especially because you brought up this bifurcation on college campuses across non-credit and credit. So NCAL, the Non-Credit and Credit Alignment Lab, was inspired by research that our firm did going back to 2018, also funded by the ECMC Foundation, that culminated in a white paper called a more unified community college. And in addition to, I think, being a white paper that tried to answer this question of what does good non-credit and credit pathways look like, it was also a bit of a call to action about how our colleges across the country, rather than encouraging a learner to progress between non-credit and credit, and going back to kind of my time working at LaGuardia Community College, that was something we'd talk about, right? How do we get more of our non-credit learners engaged in credit coursework? And the reality is our structures discourage that. Everything from how our courses are designed to how we work with the faculty and instructors to even the back office functions that exist are creating these inefficiencies. And so while our initial research question with a more unified community college really focused actually on the credit designation process, right? How can we get more non-credit courses to you know, be awarded for credit once a student transitions? Um, but the reality is we learned that that problem was just one piece of the puzzle. And so um, what we created was a framework for thinking about alignment that tries to be more expansive than just that credit designation question. So we included in it things like treat all students as students, making sure that, right, we don't have the stratification with, hmm, we're calling students and non-credit, non-credit students, and we're calling students in credit just students. What does that language actually imply about how we treat learners on our campuses when they enroll in these two different quote unquote sides of the college? 
Another, make programs credit worthy or credit based. That's that credit designation process, making sure that that's as automatic as possible. Another tenet of the framework was about communicating pathways to learners, making it really clear what that next step on the path is for them. There was a piece on sort of organizational structure, um, making sure that, right, if we're gonna have aligned pathways, we gotta make sure faculty, instructors, and staff on both sides are talking to one another, understand the other, and frankly, valuing the work that the others do. And then the last one, remove barriers to transition. This gets to that fact that a lot of the back office function, budgets, financial aid, data, are all very different across non-credit and credit and bringing those more into alignment. And so we introduced this framework and as you were saying, ECMC Foundation funded us to then go and pilot this framework in a bunch of places. Um, so we pulled together across the country, sets of cross-functional teams. And when I say that, I mean, um, you know, they had staff and faculty from non-credit, staff and faculty from credit to come together to um, test out this framework in two pathways and basically answer the question like, hey, when we do these five things that I just listed out, do more learners transition between non-credit and credit? You know, and we worked with them over two years. We conducted self-assessments. We talked to learners. We focus group their learners, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about today. We talked to over 80 learners who had started in non-credit. Um, we help them develop a vision for alignment, plans to enact that vision for alignment. And then we also provided tailored coaching to then go out and do that. Um, and in addition to all of that, we provided a bunch of touch points throughout the two years uh, through a community of practice that brought the colleges together. We had an awesome uh, meeting in DC back in 2022 where uh, we conducted a gallery walk where all the colleges could provide feedback to one another on how the work is going. So um, it was a pretty extensive process and I think we learned a lot from it. We're gonna talk about the students' experience and perspective in just a minute, but um, can you share with our listeners here today some of the key lessons that we learned from our non-credit to credit alignment lab? Yeah, I think one of the first ones is don't underestimate the amount of time it takes for non-credit and credit to start speaking the same language. So I mentioned how in our research on a more unified community college, we had gone in with this perspective of very nearly focused on that credit designation process. How can we get more courses to articulate for credit? But the reality is Pathways is so much more than that. This is, NCAL was really initiative about moving towards a one college model. And so getting sort of helping faculty and staff at colleges understand this larger vision, this one college vision for the work probably took the first six months of the grant, right? Um, and then a lot of that has to do with, I think, valuing what's happening on both sides of the college. So definitely don't underestimate that. And um, because it's so important to being clear on like, why, why are we doing this in the first place, right? And equity being one of them. You know, a couple of others that we learned and we're going to talk about, talk to your students in non-credit. We learned early on, I mentioned we did these focus groups. That was not something that the colleges we worked with had really done before. They were like, you know, we survey our current students in credit. We survey our credit alumni. We don't survey our learners in non-credit. And so um, this was a really important piece uh, to the work, I think, again, in the visioning and the motivation for colleges getting everyone on the same page. And a third one that I think rose up 
pretty quickly. I mentioned one of the tenets of our framework was around organizational structure and how important that is in either facilitating or sometimes impeding alignment. Um, and what we learned pretty quickly in testing out that piece is that collaborative organizational structures are very different depending on your context. You can imagine small rural college versus a huge district like San Diego Community College District, they're gonna have a very different approach to collaborative organizational structure. Some colleges like Prince George's Community College did entire mergers of departments to bring that together under one leadership. Others looked at programs of study like you know health sciences and developed co-leadership over those specific departments like dean, dean level. And then others pursued it in ways like developing you know cross-training for faculty and staff. So a lot of different interpretations of that. And, and we learned pretty quickly that really what the outcome we're seeking, which is that collaboration across faculty and staff, is what matters. And how you get there is probably a little bit less standardized across institutions. Having the scope in mind of it, it's not going to happen overnight. <laughs> Having that in perspective is definitely resourceful. But the most important thing is, you know, what are we here uh, to to do? Is and it's really to help support our learners, regardless of what side of the house that they're coming coming from, um, or what programs that they're participating in. Um, so in the fall of 2023, uh, we were actually able to sit down with uh, some students at three of the institutions that participated in NCAL uh, to learn more about their experiences. So first, can you tell us uh, a little bit more about uh, who these students are and what do we know about these learners in non-credit programs? Yeah, so we uh, were very generously uh, some of our participants in NCAL at North Shore Community College in Massachusetts, San Jacinto College in Texas, and San Diego College of Continuing Education in San Diego, California. Um, helped us sit down with students and do a really deep dive. So we talked to six students over uh, the last few months, again, in a really deep dive uh, conversation. But we also did focus groups with 80 plus learners through the NCAL initiative. And I think, you know, I want to state that because it'll give us a little bit broader look on who we're talking to. And what I'll say about those 80 were the majority of them were over the age of 25. This is pretty well documented in the literature, but non-credit tend because of its flexibility tends to be more attractive to adult learners. They also tended to be um, slightly more male and more likely to be learners of colors when compared to their counterparts in credit, right? So if you're looking at one institution, your percentage of learners of color and non-credit on average were higher than learners in credit. Um, this actually, the gender piece was not the case um, in the six interviews we had. Um, we, we talked to um, exclusively women actually this fall um, and a good number of them were parenting students, um, which I think also speaks to the flexibility of non-credit coursework and how that appeals to learners with really busy lives. Um, of the six we interviewed, I think it's also really important. We we asked them, why did you enroll in non-credit coursework? Like what, what was attractive to you about this? And this answer varied. And this is an important piece because non-credit students are not a monolith. Um, you know, some talked about, hey, I want to try out post-secondary. You know, I, I wanted to see if it was quote unquote, like for me. 
Um, some had had a very bad experience with post-secondary previously and sort of the process of enrolling and paying was just much simpler for them in non-credit. There was actually one story of a student who nearly finished her bachelor's degree and then uh, her college lost accreditation. She was unable to then transfer those credits anywhere. So the idea of starting over was just so exhausting to her. Non-credit provided a good option. And then there were some who, you know, I heard about it from a friend and I wanted to try it out. It sounded like it was a good place for me, right? Um, you know, uh, we actually heard this a couple of times with folks who identified as part of an immigrant community. Um, every single one of them though, Sean, had some sort of connection to their career prospects, which is not surprising, right? In, in very kind of industry workforce training programs. But I think it's important because the story we heard of these students was, oh, you know, I hit, I've hit a ceiling at work and um, I really, I need, I need to come back here to upskill. And as it related to that transition to credit, which, you know, the deep dive conversations this fall were much more focused on, they talked about Hey, I want to move from entry level to right. I have I have my sights set on you know this next this next rung on the career ladder for me. Um, so I think the the motivation that was common among among the learners we talked to both the you know eighty plus in the focus groups, but also these six deeper dive conversations was I want to do better you know in my career. I want to do better for my family, um, and I see I see this transition to credit as being really important to that. So in, in thinking about how we can really support these students, what did the students actually share with us on what they need to actually succeed in these programs and eventually um, their career career goals that they have? One of, um, I, have a, I have a couple that came through really strongly. The first, and, and I, feel, I felt pretty good about them because a lot of them were reflective of some of what we were talking about in the framework, but just put a finer point on some of them. Every single one of them talked about communicating options really clearly. I think one student even referred to it as like, make sure they know what their routes are in and out of this program. And how I interpret that is every learner who comes into a non-credit program should learn two things. One, what kind of job can I get with this education and training? And what additional education and training is available to me when I finish it, right? Knowing those options is empowering for learners. The second is making sure that faculty and staff are equipped to communicate those options, right? So in addition to, I wanna be able to see it on the website, I wanna be able to see it in pamphlets, what these pathways are, faculty and staff ultimately are going to be the frontline workers, if you will, who are giving this message to students. Um, and all, almost all of the students, I believe, that we interviewed who were successful in making that transition to credit had someone really specific that they referenced who had helped them out. And finally, um, we also heard about the need for culturally inclusive supports. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, right, one of our individuals talking about in her community, like they non-credit had been really helpful um, and that's how she sort of heard it in word of mouth. But I think it's so especially for immigrants, for international students who might have very different needs, making sure that we're being inclusive in providing those supports to learners um, so that they can be successful, again, in knowing those two options and then making the choice themselves about what they want to pursue next. Being able to have that, you know, everybody on, on staff at, at the institution 
um, understand where your pathways are, and if not, who can I point you in the direction to so they can help answer and be another resource um, for the students is, is essential. So in thinking about the institutions, you know, one being able to have that holistic environment of the communication strategy to help out and uh, help support all these, these learners. Um, what are some other ways that colleges can better address the needs of learners in the non-credit programs? I mean, I think I mentioned the culturally inclusive supports, but just providing learners in non-credit with those critical support services available at the college is a big one. Um, they don't, one of the things we learned in a more unified community college is learners in non-credit don't often have access to libraries, to tutoring, to the gym on campus. And that starts with a question that I think trustees could be asking of their colleges, do our students in non-credit get a student ID? That often is what is hindering this. So in one of the one of the focus group conversations we had, um, a learner talked about, oh, I went, I went to go take out a book at our library. I went up to the desk. She asked me for an ID. I said, I didn't have one. I said, I was enrolled at continuing education. And she said, I'm sorry, you're not a student here. You can't, you can't take out that book. How do you think that makes a learner feel? Second question as it relates to that, similar side here, do they get a college email? Um, another example that I had from another college in NCAL, they had an emergency storm, email blasted out to all their students, hey, the college is closed today. They found out pretty quickly, none of their learners in non-credit received it because they don't have a college email. So again, how are we providing those supports and access to those supports for learners in non-credit? Second is your website. One of the things we found was, yeah, a lot of these colleges we worked with had good pathways between non-credit and credit. They just weren't talking about them. They, they weren't really clear anywhere in their website, right? You had to, maybe if they existed, you had to do 10 clicks through the website. Um, and so, you know, if you do have these pathways, are they easy to understand? And does everyone at the college, importantly, know about it? And I'll get that to a second, in a second. Um, the third one, information about financial aid. I mean, this this isn't a big surprise, but funding, ugh, like funding, looks so differently between non-credit and credit. Um, you know, a lot a lot of non-credit programs funded by WIOA, sometimes funded by Perkins, although there's credit programs that are funded by Perkins. Um, and of course, there's Title IV over 600 clock hours. That could be non-credit, but more often it's credit. Um, and so students in non-credit, you know, often are pursuing non-credit because it's really easy to enroll. And boy, it's really easy to pay this and a much more simplified process. And then they go to make the transition to credit and they're like, holy cow, what's a FAFSA? Wait, there's, you know, the, I need to like maintain a certain GPA for this. And there's all these stipul stipulations around funding. So being really clear about the aid that's available and trying to take as much of that, of understanding the nuances of that off the students' shoulders was another piece that we heard. And then finally, um, related, I think, to communications is just the cross-training of faculty and staff. We had another example from a learner who talked about, oh, you know, my instructor in non-credit was so helpful and they told me I could get this credit for this course towards longer-term degree. And so I, you know, I jumped through hoops to enroll in this degree program, you know, and you know, pretty shortly I'm talking to, you know, staff on the other side and they're saying, no, sorry, we don't have any sort of articulation agreements like that in place. You cannot 
earn credit for that. When the reality is it did exist actually with more digging. And so making sure that, right, when pathways do exist, we're doing everything we can so that faculty staff on both non-credit and credit sides, um, so to speak, understand what exists. Definitely just providing that ID um, allows them to be able to have the same types of access of the campus resources that the institution is providing. Uh, I mean, just going, I don't know about you, but just going to check out a library book um, there to help just learn a little bit something new, or maybe I heard something from a professor. I would love to be able to have that chance to go to and do, but you know, it's it's hard to imagine that some learners are non-credit programs at our institutions don't have that type of access. Yeah, and what I'll tell you, Sean, like on the student ID piece, so I presented on some of this work to a community college association that I won't mention the name of, but it came up like, well, what do you do about student fees? Learners in non-credit are not paying student fees, and that is a question we get. And somebody else in the room immediately stood up and like, our, our students in credit are really subsidizing those fees right now. You know, like that we could basically, we could figure out the financial implications of providing those supports to learners in non-credit as it relates to the fee structure. Um, so, you know, I would, one of my reflections on doing this work for the last, you know, four or five years is that there's a lot of myth busting that needs to be done. I think that's true with any change management. It often happens when we talk about sort of the credit designation process and what accreditors will and won't allow. Um, but making sure that you have the facts straight and that you can always come back to your motivation, which is, hey, this is about the learner and equity for the learner and choices and empowerment for the learner. Exactly. So in thinking about just the changes that you know, these institutions that were going through the pilot program um, had gone through and have, and have done to try to make more alignment between the non-credit and credit side of the house, um, what impact do these changes have on our learners? Well, our hope, you know, Sean, we're, we're going to be working over the course of the next year to get some quantitative data. So we had done a data collection process. I mean, this is another lesson learned about capacity of data. We'll talk more about the learners, but the capacity of collecting and analyzing and using non-credit data is very limited at our colleges. And it has a lot to do with just lack of standards for data collection and reporting that exists around non-credit. But our hope is that what we'll find once we do this final data poll is that when compared to the baseline from 2020, that more learners are transitioning between non-credit and credit. That's what we really want to see is that you do all these five things and we successfully move learners towards additional education and training that leads to a more you know, economically mobile career and family sustaining wage. I think for the learners and in the conversations that we had, what we learned from the NPAL work is about belonging that they feel more a part of the community. And a point of pride for me in this work is, yes, we learn that from the students. When I get an ID, I feel, I feel a lot more connected to this community than I did before. When instructors tell me, hey, why aren't you enrolling in that degree program? You're encouraging learners to continue, continue on. They feel like they belong. Um, and a point of pride for me, as I was saying, is we also did qualitative kind of pre and post assessment of faculty and staff who were engaged in NCAL and found that particularly non-credit faculty and instructors felt more integrated into the college community after this initiative, meaning they're brought more into meetings, right? They're 
non-credit and non-credit students are brought up more in conversations at the college and strategic conversations at the college that their programs and non-credit are more respected, right? They, we asked these questions on a survey and they, they felt a, a big difference from sort of the start of the NCAL to the end. And to me, I think that's starting to capture some of the culture change that this one college model can create at the college. And then of course, uh, I think where we started in all of this work is just information is power and for the learner to feel empowered to be able to chart their own course to whether that is I want to do a job next or I want to do additional education and training. They have the option to do that because we are communicating and giving them the support and the information they need to make that choice. So I think those are some of the, I think, really high level outcomes that we see. And of course, waiting on the quantitative data to really be able to um, capture how this shows up um, just in enrollments. So throughout the course of this work, uh, you know, we have noticed that a one college model is feasible. So what is one piece of advice you have to colleges that want to get started on this work? Well, if it's not, I think, clear from what we've been talking about, to me, the, the first place to start is talking to your learners. Survey your learners in non-credit. If you are a trustee and you are listening to this, find out how much is known about your learners in non-credit. Ask them about their motivations. What supports do they need to be successful? Ask them if they feel like they belonged on your campus. Um, and this is just important because it helps to define the motivation for alignment. Inevitably, what I've found in this work is there will be some faculty and staff on both credit and non-credit, right? Both sides who say learners in non-credit aren't interested in degrees, flat out. They don't want degrees, but we're not gonna get I think far in debunking the idea that every learner who comes into non-credit is just there for a short while and then back into the labor market until we take the time to ask them ourselves. And so making sure I think that's such an important starting point to get some of these outcomes of belonging, of empowerment for our learners and also just for your college community, right? We mentioned the impact on faculty and staff. Um, so I think that's a really logical place to start. And then there are plenty of great examples from the colleges and NCAL of what you do once you know and, and how do you address it. Uh, I want to say thank you uh, so much for joining us here today for our podcast. Uh, it's been wonderful uh, having you here. And to our listeners, uh, to learn more about the NCAL initiative and access available resources, please visit acct.org forward slash N-C-A-L.